time of monsters. So what better time to discuss a book that purports to tell us the history of a particular location that birthed some of these monsters. Uh, This is uh, Reading in the Time of Monsters. Uh, This is episode 8. We'll be discussing Malcolm Harris's Palo Alto. But first, a little bit of self-criticism. I've been away for a while. It's been about two months since I last uploaded a podcast. I'm sorry about that, if you are really looking forward to hearing more. Um, I didn't want to be so laggardly. What happened was, I had a look at some of my podcasts. I tried recording an episode about some books that I read. I did a very bad job with it. It was a solo podcast, and I kind of fell between the two stools of trying to talk loosely and informally and trying to be prepared. Wound up being a you know really not very great episode. So I scrapped it, and I thought, well, I think from now on, I'm going to try to get guests. I think the show works better with guests. And I am working on getting some guests. I think I have some good ones in the pipeline. That said, I don't think I have to be married to this plan. I don't think I have to be married to only doing shows with guests. I can be flexible. I could do mostly guests, which I do plan on doing. And I can do occasional solo episodes as well. And that's what I'm going to do today. I don't have a guest on today, but I prepared, I think, in a better way to discuss uh, this topic, and I think it'll come out pretty well. In terms of self-crit about performance, uh, you know, it's been a while since I did a podcast, so people have not been talking about it to me too often, and I haven't been listening to them. Uh, However, a, a good friend of the pod said that I could afford to not talk so slowly, right? I think of uh, talking slowly as being a a good thing, a way to be deliberate, among other things. When I was trying to improvise a little bit more, I would speak more slowly because I have basically just the very beginnings of a public speaking slash elocution education. Mostly I've done it catch as catch can, but I have had uh, a few formal lessons paid for me by an employer, actually. And the one thing that the very nice uh, elocution teacher or public speaking teacher, whatever you call it, emphasized was that rather than throw in filler words, ums, ahs, you knows, that it makes sense to pause and come up with the right word. And I think there's something to that, but I have to figure that it might be a bit like beginner advice in the martial arts, where some of it is more about teaching you away from bad habits and towards good habits rather than literal advice you should always take in competition or in a fight. So, uh, you know, I am going to try to talk at a more natural pace, even when I'm Uh, basically reading scripted material. And uh, I think one of the good things about having more guests on is it will give me more opportunity to just kind of speak improvisationally. Nobody expects the same kind of articulation when one's having a conversation than one does when one is just sort of talking about something. 
So that's what we're dealing with here. That's the end of the self-crit for today. Uh, this is episode nine of Reading in the Time. Oh, sorry, episode eight of Reading in the Time of Monsters. And like I said, we're going to talk about uh, Malcolm Harris uh, quickly uh, before we get into that. I guess I should do the professional thing and say that it would be helpful if you subscribed to this podcast or whatever kind of quote-unquote podcatcher you use. I don't think I'm going to be paywalling episodes anytime too soon. I just don't like doing it, especially when my production schedule is so irregular. If I'm going to have you pay for something, I really think it would be better if I could produce it more regularly, which is made considerably more difficult if I'm relying on guests. I mean, I do think I can get guests regularly, but it might be a few all at once and then a few less frequently. But in any event, subscribing, I think, will be helpful, and I'm not going to ask you to pay for it. You can also subscribe to my uh, Substack. Substack will carry these podcasts, and they will also carry my weekly newsletter, which involves when I don't have a podcast to share, I will have uh, probably, at least, I'm, I'm aiming for having some kind of essay uh, about stuff that I'm reading or stuff that I'm writing, also briefer reviews on other stuff that I read. There's a cute picture of my cat with every installment of my newsletter, the Melendia Avenue Review. So that's helpful. Rate my podcast if, if you like. You know, I'm told that's helpful. Share it around. Tell people about this, you know, wacky <laughs> literary podcast you heard of. Uh, so yeah, uh, do 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 the things. Do the stuff for me. There'll be links. Links in the show notes. Any event. Onto the actual discussion. Uh, and I want to start by talking about a friend of mine who's from the South, who I met in grad school. And he likes to say that New England and the South, because he, he, I met him up here in New England, uh, where our school was, uh, that they intellectually construct themselves in reference to each other, that each kind of provides a reference point for the other to oppose in creating its identity. And I think there's really something to that. And we would talk about it, and I added a corollary that California is kind of the end of the dialectic between the South and New England. Obviously, there's other regions in the country that are also quite important, but I think California plays this particular role of kind of a shrugging, smirking synthesis that can be barely bothered to acknowledge its ancestors. And on the other hand, neither the South nor New England really understand what's going on there. I've been to California uh, numerous times, several locations throughout the state. I've spent some time there over the last 15 years or so. Californian writers, uh, ones, not just ones who happen to be from there, but people who have a lot to say about it, have been pretty important to my education, uh, to learning how to think about what it is I do. Mike Davis in history, James Elroy in crime fiction, John Dolan in criticism, there are probably others I could list. Uh, despite this, I wouldn't say that I exactly get California. And I do tend to think that the regional differences play a role in this beyond the obvious, I'm not from there, so I don't have experience with it, I'm not used to it, so on. Uh, I mean, perhaps I'm just another white guy looking for some sort of identity to hang my hat on, but I do think that I'm a pretty New England New Englander, and I would say one piece of evidence for that is that other New Englanders 
who also identify quite strongly with the region, would vociferously disagree uh, that I'm the, with that self-assignment. Uh, and I don't dislike California. In fact, I actually like it a lot. Every time I've been there, I've actually found it uh, pretty pleasant. There's a lot of aspects about it I like. Um, and one of the things that I like about it is that for all the cultural homogenization that mass media produces in the regions of America, at the end of the day, America's America. I get all that and that corporate culture and what have you has significantly reduced differences between regions. California still does feel different from my home here in Massachusetts. So I like California and I like returning from California, if that makes sense. That's all a little bit of perspective because we're going to talk about a book about the city of Palo Alto, California. Uh, Palo Alto carries with it a certain degree of narrative charge as the heart of Silicon Valley, home of Stanford University. But unlike other storied California locations, San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles, Oakland, Yosemite, uh, you know, the other big parks, I, which I should probably know the names of, uh, uh, you know, San Diego, so on and so forth, uh, Palo Alto not thought of as spectacular. There's not much to see there. The action of Palo Alto takes place in garages or, more often than not now, sprawling office parks. Impressionistically, it looks like any other rich suburb, uh, specifically the climactically pleasant West Coast version of the rich suburb, not the somewhat dowdier East Coast type that I'm familiar with still. I spent about a week there once, a few years back, doing archival research actually at the Hoover Institution, uh, you know, some of its archives, which Hoover Institution comes up several times here in the book. And I found the town to be pleasant, a little boring, very good Chinese food, but ultimately not, not a standout for its appearance or for its, for lack of a better term, vibe. Malcolm Harris, the author of the this new work of history, published this year, 2023, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World, makes Palo Alto very interesting. And he does so in the good old way, making the familiar strange by digging into the origins and hidden flows behind the facade. Harris is a Palo Alto native, a product of its acclaimed public schools. He's since taken the cool kid Hagira to Philadelphia. Enjoy that before we all get... You all get priced out. Sorry, I shouldn't be so resentful. But people, well, we'll leave that for a, another day. Uh, and Harris makes a compelling argument for Palo Alto as ground zero for a distinctly American and distinctly Californian take on global capitalism and the myriad exploitations and oppressions that that entails. Uh, where Harris's arguments don't convince, they almost always fascinate. Where they don't fascinate through inspired analysis and skillful historical spade work, as they usually do in this book, the arguments compel a certain fascination through sheer pathetic dopiness, which sometimes borders on the actually ghastly, like a gnarly flesh wound acquired through a hard-fought game of hacky sack. I came into this book having read a number of years ago Harris's previous book, Kids These Days, which to the best of my knowledge, I have looked a little at the literature here, is uh, the best book on the millennial generation, and a pretty good book despite the liabilities of generational analysis. Uh, Malcolm Harris not only is a millennial, born in 1988, 
few years younger than myself, but kids these days could easily be the product of an intelligent writer from any age group, maybe with some of the cultural references swapped out, and I see that as usually being a pretty good sign for any work of uh, any work of that type of analysis. But if you zoom out from Harris's two serious books, Kids These Days and Palo Alto, placing Harris into context uh, is an exercise in the vein, but nevertheless crucial, kind of unavoidable task uh, of reading the distinctions between overlapping spheres of social media-bound contemporary intellectuals. Uh, members of these cliques define themselves by sets of political ideas, cultural opinions, personal attitudes, but equally important, if not more important, they define themselves in opposition to the range of those things held by other cliques, even when, especially when, the cliques agree on more than what they don't. Harris enrages other leftists. As far as I could tell, the right doesn't really notice him, helps that he's cisgender and white, I think, practically close in the dark if you google image search him uh some of the issues uh between harris and other leftists appear to be political harris's politics seem to be a kind of uh anarcho-communism that embraces both class struggle and a disdain for things like schools and families and other sources of the uh you know proverbial cop in one's head uh a lot of the anger, though, strikes me as coming down to differences of culture and aesthetic. Harris comes off as a 2010s hipster figure and, and was such a figure. He came to prominence during the Occupy movement in uh, the early 2010s. Uh, comes off as terminally online, catty, smug, as a theory head, but without the kind of erudition one might associate with the OG theory heads, at least not in his online presentation of self. Uh, and as a you know, sort of revolutionary whose ideas, though, are sufficiently abstract and unrealistic that if you're uncharitably inclined, as most people on the Internet are, you can assume that Harris knows full well that he'll never be called upon to act on any of that revolutionary posturing. Uh, you, you, At least I got sort of the idea uh, that Harris kind of intentionally plays into this image. Uh, I only joined Twitter to fitfully promote this podcast, which I created this year. Uh, and I'm told that the platform is now dying. So you got to understand, I get most of these impressions secondhand. Let's get down to brass tacks. Malcolm Harris, for all that he's been the subject of unfair criticism over the years, for all that some of his leftist critics are motivated by weird subcultural beef and anti-intellectualism, can be annoying. And that's not entirely missing from Palo Alto. But... It's missing from most of it. And what you have instead is a lot of interesting history with a compelling analytical through line. If you're looking for the annoying Harris to hate read, you'll find it, though I would suggest flipping to the conclusion to save time, because most of it's there. But if you want to read good history, if you want to learn something, gain perspective on the past and on our world, you'll find a lot more of that in this very rich book. So the thing about California, as far as I could tell, is that it was the end of the line, or, or perhaps even the end zone might be a better metaphor, for the cycle of conquest, exploitation, settlement that began with Anglo settlement in Virginia during the 17th century. I'm well aware that American power extends across the Pacific and has done so even before California uh, became a state. 
I'm aware that settler colonialism is a fundamental part of, say, Hawaii's story, as imperialism is, American imperialism is with the Philippines and so on. But I think it's fair to say that California is the last place that could be, be considered a real promised land for the main thrust of white expansion across North America. You weren't going to get that many settlers settled in Hawaii. Obviously, there are, but it's an island chain. Uh, it's not that big. Philippines, uh, similar problem, too far away. Uh, people, I'm sure, dreamed of replacing the indigenous people of the Philippines with white settlers, but it uh, seems a little distant compared to what Calif- what the Anglos dreamed of and what they proved quite capable of in California. So as such, uh, the settlement of California took place under a much more developed capitalist system than did the settlement of the eastern seaboard or the Midwest. This meant both that the ways and means of conquest and dispossession available to the Americans had been keenly honed by the time they started showing up in California in numbers, and that those who rose to power in California understood the necessity of innovation to compete in an increasingly interconnected global capitalist system. To tell this story, Harris focuses in the early parts of the book on one Leland Stanford, who became one of the major oligarchs of early Anglo-ruled California, a glad handler and a boodler, frontman for local capitalists who got their foot in the door by choosing the ascendant Republican Party. Leland Stanford was not a great man, nor a particularly good man. But as Harris illustrates, personal greatness is seldom the point in these stories of men who rise through the ranks of the capitalist system. Stanford fit a niche in this rapidly developing uh, economic and social system of white capitalist California, and it made him an enormous fortune as he situated himself less to build the railroad to California and more to profit off of the land holdings and monopoly rents that his involvement with the intercontinental railroad schemes allowed him. Gold and land. Land picked up as a major California commodity as the gold rush ended, leaving a legacy of intensified racial violence and a model of a certain type of capitalist engineer that would prove important down the line. These things drive visions of a certain kind of glory. The way a rogues gallery of American adventurers fantasize themselves as kings or emperors of the West or of Cuba or of California, Mexico... Well, Stanford was a little too bourgeois for all that, right? He didn't imagine himself as a literal crowned head. But he came to see himself as a liege lord of sorts, the benevolent father of white American California. Though it's worth noting he was maybe a little bit less racist in a patronizing kind of way than some Californian dreamers before and after him. Uh, His son, Leland Stanford Jr., was his golden boy, uh, who would become the, the the golden prince who would become king after him. The one who put would put California on the map of national power. And then the boy died, age 15, during a tour of Europe. His bereaved parents, who in late middle age only had the one kid, decided that subsequently all the children of California would be their children. And to instantiate that vision, they took their massive estate out in the rural South Bay in a town named after tall trees, Palo Alto, if you didn't notice, uh, into Leland Stanford Junior College. Now, I, I don't really have the space here to follow all the twists and turns in the Stanford story, let alone all the twists and turns of the stories that Harris tells. But rest assured, 
along with the usual terrible racism and corrupt power play shenanigans that you'd expect, it seems likely that the first president of Stanford poisoned its namesake's mother and then tried to pin it on her cook, who, of course, was Asian. Uh, The thing with California is, despite being the end of the rainbow for a people that has told itself that the frontier is what guarantees rugged individualism and that rugged individualism in turn secures the frontier, as opposed to state-led genocidal violence against indigenous people, California is a highly organized hierarchical place. It might not look like it uh, to those used to the way hierarchy is organized, even in other parts of the English-speaking world, but it is. Small operators could get your foot could get their feet in the door during moments of flux, like the gold rush, but they would invariably get scooped up or displaced by organizers who could realize the advantages of scale and implement innovations and rationalization of production, distribution, finance, and all the other aspects of economic life. And so, California became the home of the first great consumer-facing bank, the Bank of America, which had started as a bank of Italy, a small retail banker for Italian immigrants. The founder, Amadeo Giannini, quickly realized that the consolidation and rationalization practices he had used to grow his bank with innovations like file catalogs on creditworthiness for all his potential applicants, opening up uh, regional and local banking retail banking centers that all had the same standard operating procedures, so on and so forth, that these innovations could also be used in fields like agriculture. So we're used to think of American agriculture as the realm of family farms, even if we know better, certainly by now. Uh, but historically, that's somewhat more ambiguous uh, than it is uh, in our impressions, and no, nowhere more so than in California. So California is one of the breadbaskets of the country. Uh, it was never especially friendly to anything resembling self-sufficient family agriculture, even less so than most of the U.S., but Giannini combined with growing agricultural interests to provide the credit for consolidating agriculture still further, creating these large sort of factories in the field, like uh, Kerry McWilliams, kind of the godfather of left-leaning California writing, described, right, big operations, uh, scienti- the, the best, you know, scientific agricultural methods, the laborers, are often immigrants. They're not the owners of the land. And that's how we get our oranges and our, uh, you know, lettuce, and so on and so forth. Patterns like this, this rationalization, repeated themselves in other areas of the economy. Mining and construction firms all over the world, in Harris's telling, came to value Californian engineers as the men who could get things done. And wherever these engineers went, scattered all over the rapidly colonizing world, they brought with them both the latest technologies, along with the latest labor-breaking practices and financial engineering concepts that helped defray the costs of adapting to expensive new techniques. Many of these were Stanford men, including the most famous of them all, Herbert Hoover. An unusually strong terror of labor disruption shaped everything that the California capitalists did, shapes everything they still do, even with labor historically weak. 
Labor was expensive on the frontier as soon as capital started bending prospectors into workers, exactly the fate most of them went west to avoid, these workers began organizing. Even where it wasn't organized, labor was always a comparatively expensive input to the productive process, and capital put a lot of thought into figuring out how to make that input cheaper and more pliable. Racial division and oppression was, as in most parts of the Americas, the first tool sought to manage labor beginning with the extermination of the native Californians, begun by the Spanish, continued by the Mexicans, massively accelerated by the Americans. There was always a divide between those labor organizers who would eschew racism and organize all workers and those who accepted racialization and fought specifically for the white worker, generally harder against Chinese and Mexican workers in California than against the bosses. But at crucial points in California history, and especially in the period between World War I and World War II. The real leftists, the ones dedicated to organizing across races, workplaces, and industries, began to gain an upper hand in the California Union movement. As so often happens in American labor history, this is more the story of inspiring steps, and often defeats, towards an end goal that the heroes can't reach, but it scared the hell out of people like Herbert Hoover and the class he came from. We could use a man like Herbert Hoover once again, the conservative olds in that 70s show crooned. But as usual, TV gets it half right. Urban old people back then would probably have preferred Father Coughlin to a guy like Hoover for their, uh, you know, uh, nostalgic anti-FDR figure. But Harris makes a compelling argument for Hoover as both a symbol of and operator for a vision of California-style capitalism gone national and global. If you want to reduce it violently, this vision comes down to a few key principles. Consolidate to empower, segment to oppress, steer innovation to accentuate both the consolidation and the segmentation. Harris comes close to a sympathetic tone. All the grasping after power Hoover did and the very real organizational talent he showed Hoover's reputation for humanitarianism was exaggerated, Harris shows. There was always a financial hook to the aid efforts that made him famous during World War I, but he was smarter than was commonly credited. And then a financial crash that had very little to do with him or with his cronies comes along, and he has to surrender power to some damn East Coast fancy boy who, to add insult to injury, becomes widely beloved by the populace. FDR borrowed much of Hoover's domestic program, especially his idea for diffusing the ticking bomb that was adequate housing via a policy of funding and restructuring real estate markets rather than social housing, along with strengthening markets, defusing social tensions, and rewarding workers for not rocking the boat. Housing policy also served the purpose of segmenting the population. Dividing classes, and especially races, both geographically, through redlining, and economically. Through granting white people the ability to accumulate generational wealth in their homes, and making it near impossible for black people to do the same. So, there are obvious limits to Harris's sympathetic portrayal of Hoover. He just wants you to know he was a clever bastard, not a bumbling one. Silicon Valley truly came into its own, thanks to the Cold War. Federal funding for technological research ramped up during the Second World War and became a permanent facet of American life during the long twilight struggle with global communism. Governmental-slash-corporate cooperation, and and really, you should never let any of these people tell you that they don't want government involvement in the market, they just want it on their terms. 
they cooperate in developing and promulgating technological progress along capital-friendly paths. Uh, and this had been a central aspect of California capitalism since the days of the railroad. Among his other accomplishments, Hoover more or less created civilian aviation as we know it in the U.S., standardizing airport and uh, flight paths and all, all that kind of thing, and helping to fund civilian aviation as well. Uh, so Stanford University invested hard in radio technology. Uh, this led to uh, the creation of vacuum tubes, which in turn led to digital information storage and computing as we know it. It's likely that the United States would have fought the Cold War even without the electronic systems that government-sponsored university-slash-corporate research gave it, but there was no way it could have fought the Cold War on the same scale without unacceptable casualties and costs, without the extrasensory perceptions, encounters to the same, the guidance systems, the logistical supports, so on and so forth, that this technology provided. And it still wasn't, almost wasn't enough. It was more than enough to overawe the Soviets, who turned out to be much less formidable, arguably not the central player that everyone assumed in the Cold War. It almost wasn't enough uh, to allow American dominion over the emerging decolonizing world. That power wasn't enough in Vietnam, for instance. Popular struggle didn't end in the Bay Area, even in the South Bay, which was ground zero for the creation of the space-age suburb, these sprawling vistas of detached housing containing nuclear families, as they came to be called, which in turn were supported by the defense industry and FHA loans and federally constructed highways, social security, keeping the grandparents uh, from having to live with you, etc., etc., with the Black Panthers relatively proximate in Oakland and many students looking to disrupt war industries, the South Bay became a front in the domestic Cold War, a history occluded somewhat by emphasis on counterculture narratives. The counterculture was important, but more for shaping the attitudes of middle-class white people, even as they borrowed or stole massively from every other class and race in order to create the counterculture, the culture part, uh, it was more important for that than it was necessarily for encouraging rebellion. In the end, though, what Harris calls the great bifurcation won out, right? The students can uh, plant their firebombs at the computing center in, uh, on the Stanford campus uh, however many times they like or various other parts. But between uh, their own mistakes and the power of the American state, the ability of the American domestic intelligence apparatus to disrupt and set progressive groups against each other. you got the great bifurcation, as Harris calls it. So conservatives like to say that capitalism is necessary for individuality to flourish. Sometimes they phrase that as though the only way to express individuality is through a broad swath of consumer choices, but this is a weak argument, however you slice it, and conservatives increasingly seem to understand that. They don't make that argument as often as they used to. You also get the idea that capitalism breeds individuality via some sort of spirit of competition or something. Like most stories that rely on spirits achieving material effects in the world, the actual story usually has something more to do with real estate schemes or other money-making shenanigans. The actual Hoover and those who followed in his footsteps and arguably took his vision past the goal line long after the old grade grubber was in, in his grave probably believed something close to the latter explanation about competitive spirit, but that's not what they created. 
And that's not what the relationship between capitalism and individuality is in their time and place or any other. The basic art of capitalist governance, or anyway, as capitalism faces the masses, is to consistently bifurcate along more or less arbitrary lines, society into at least two tranches, the winners and the losers, and often segmenting it further than that. Conservatives value capitalism because capitalism generates hierarchy, right? All those segments are arrayed in a hierarchy, and there's rising and there's falling. Sometimes there are challenges uh, to, to who is in which seat in the hierarchy, but the thing that most threatens it is threatening the hierarchy and the way that the hierarchy could be uh, taken as the ultimate judgment of how one uh, can live their lives, can can live, whether you're allowed to live well or not. Uh, anything within capitalism that even slightly ameliorates hierarchy causes the right to freak right out, even if this amelioration is purely cosmetic and exists only to keep the capitalist system going. You can see this in the big freak out over things like corporate diversity seminars, Leftists like to mock them for being fake, which they mostly are, uh, but right-wingers actually act like it's bringing about the end of the world. The information technology that Silicon Valley became known for ultimately served to accelerate and lock in this bifurcation. Information technology as currently structured, it doesn't need to be structured this way, the internet and the tools that access it, but what we have as designed by Silicon Valley, by as funded by VCs in Silicon Valley, many of whom have connections to Stanford and to the U.S. government and to financial institutions around the world, this model of technology bifurcates labor on the domestic front between a tiny elite of owners, managers, and a shrinking class of elite engineers on the one hand, and then all the rest of uh, the the workers, the vast majority who find companies like Amazon, Uber, and the rest, if they're not working for them in brutal conditions, that the general effect of internet companies uh, and the internet disruption of the economy is to de-skill and degrade labor, even if you're not immediately in the industry, just by existing. Often these companies only make money based on how savagely they uh, make labor worse. The system bifurcates rich countries from poor, in no small part by helping make a global investment system that puts the money of poor countries, which has generally been looted by dictators and oligarchs, into Silicon Valley companies. And these third world elites are then further incentivized, as if they weren't already, to keep labor in their countries cheap, right? Harris shows Steve Jobs' true genius wasn't in design or even in PR, though he was good at that last one. It was in finding cheap labor and being this arbitrage uh, between cheap, this connection between cheap labor and the production of innovative personal computing systems, right? And this is true from the immigrant women who uh, put together the, the chipboards that went into the early apples to the Foxconn factory uh, complexes today. And of course, the system still contributes to the global 
to the technological end of global and domestic counterinsurgency, right? All those sensors and computing systems, they weren't just guiding the bombers over Vietnam. They were also uh, creating the informational infrastructure for more ground-level counterinsurgency efforts, things like the Phoenix program. If you needed to know, uh, if your plan was to assassinate the uh, logistical and leadership capacity of the National Liberation Front in South Vietnam and leave the rest of the villages more or less intact, uh, then you needed to be able to collect and collate and store and transmit information in complex and uh, rapid ways. And Silicon Valley was on board from that from the beginning. Uh, So in case anyone wants to try and upset the apple cart, they've got that covered too. Whatever pretenses of public good that Leland Stanford's or Herbert Hoover's generation of ruthless capitalist exploiters might have had, there was some extent to which they believed they they were doing some good with this, that it was an engine of upward mobility, meritocracy, so on and so forth. By this age of Peter Thiel and Travis Kalachnik, all that pretense is mostly is gone. It's just a system doing what it does, and doing what it does, spinning along largely in the dearth of any kind of opposition that can harm it. Uh, so this is what I just said. That's a barest high-level overview of Palo Alto. There's a lot more in there. Most of it is least as interesting as the already provocative main thrust uh, of Harris's argument. Harris writes in what I think of as kind of a millennial educated casual. Essentially, he, you know, drops cuss words and playfully expressed opinions and pop culture judgments and references into the text with full confidence that doing so will not undermine the seriousness and rigor of what he's putting out there. Earlier generations of publishing, uh, you wouldn't really see a serious history with these features. Uh, But Harris, who it's worth noting, not an academic, not a PhD holder, uh, proves that the possibilities are there if you want to write real history in that kind of somewhat more casual tone. Such a book, uh, published in 2023, can't help but seem pessimistic or anyway something of a bummer. Uh, Malcolm Harris bookends Palo Alto with his discussion of the city's teen suicide problem. There's a tradition of kids from Harris's high school which is a, and more or less always has been, a meritocratic pressure cooker that winds teens up into little balls of stress and hatred in the name of building up their human capital. Uh, There's a tradition of students throwing themselves in front of the trains that run through the town. This might be uh, something of an overread, but I think the dynamic of social media intellectuals where people define themselves as much against others as for as by anything else plays a little bit into what we actually get with the ending right so harris doesn't actually fully end with contemporary palo alto with its teen suicide problem uh he can't really do a doomer ending i think i think he can't bring himself to say peter Thiel owns the future let's all walk off a cliff Right, that's not that's not Harris's scene. That's not the New Inquiry scene. Right, Harris has been a writer and editor at the New Inquiry, which was a pretty big deal mostly during the Occupy days, but it is still around, applying theory to pop culture and pop culture to theory. That's the sort of thing that the people who 
uh, fight with Harris, make fun of Harris on Twitter would say, right? That Doomer ending, that's not his, uh, he's not the one putting up the memes of, you know, uh, the Doomer. That's not him, I don't think. Maybe he has. He's got, you know, over a decade worth of tweets. I'm not going to read all of them. Unfortunately, Harris cannot make much in the way of a politically or analytically useful conclusion, though. Uh, And I wonder how much similar dynamics of uh, just these funny dynamics of social media intellectuals entered into this. uh, Because he's got what might be the single worst and just dumbest conclusion that I've read in a nonfiction book that I've otherwise gotten a lot from. So Harris ends with this sort of uh, chin stroking. What 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 to do with Palo Alto, right? Palo Alto is this pure creature of predacious capitalism. Uh, it has been ever since the since Leland Stanford showed up there, and California has been that since certainly since the Anglos showed up, and is somewhat less vociferous vein since the Spanish showed up. So what to do? What 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 would a just situation in Palo Alto look like? Well, he concludes, we would give it back to the native tribe, the Olones. Just give it back. Everyone gets up gets up and, and, and leaves, and they hand it to the Olone people to do as they wish. There's a little bit of uh, talk about what that might look like. I guess all the gardens they could plant the ancestors' graves they could tend uh, in in evacuated Palo Alto. And that's it. That's the end of the book. It's a good 20 or so pages of that, too. Malcolm Harris, I think, knows what he's doing when he makes a recommendation like that. We get 600 pages of materialist thought, followed by a few pages determining, uh, determinedly avoiding anything like material reality in favor of the sort of morals that we teach siblings as children. If you steal something, you give it back and apologize. He knows that very few people in his readership will actually say that's a dumb idea because he knows in our intellectually impoverished time, many people would interpret saying that as the Native Americans deserve to be massacred and exploited and they deserve no recompense for it. Similarly, I think Harris knows that most of his readers will pass over the part of his analysis of the Black Panthers, which he makes some good points about them. He The narrative is basically there, but it's several degrees too romantic. Uh, and he winds up saying things like that Black Americans were and are, as a group, the revolutionary vanguard. All of them, I guess. So does that count, you know, Condi Rice and Candace Owens and... David Clark and Colin Powell and whoever else you want to cite, Thomas Sowell, uh, or has this millennial who has the skin pallor of a deep sea creature decided that those people don't count as black, right? Because it's one or the other. Either the revolutionary vanguard includes all black Americans or else black Americans who aren't in the, or else black Americans who aren't in the revolutionary vanguard are a contradiction and aren't black. You know, I think that Harris is several degrees too canny uh, to really land in the so woke you reinvent racial essentialism soup. But the basic logic is at work here. But what's the percentage in saying so, right? The vocabulary isn't readily at hand to criticize this sort of thing without sounding like a reactionary. But here's a try. Harris's dialectical analysis basically fails him at the end. We get these, again, hundreds of pages weaving together the material and the ideological the cut and thrust of capital and labor, 
the conflict between different factions of capital, the back and forth between the failures of project, projects and their successes, or projects that fail from their own success or succeed from their own failing, how these things can instantiate each other. And Harris shows a very deft hand at this kind of dialectical analysis in the early parts of the book. The threads of the narrative, they never stand still, but we also don't lose track of them. I think that's a sign of a deft hand. Uh, And to me, that's what it is to think dialectically. You keep the pieces in motion, you track their transformations that come through interaction and conflict, but you keep the totality in focus as well. Dreams are very much present in Palo Alto, but this isn't the kind of history which you see increasingly with what they call the cultural turn, uh, that basically reads propaganda, advertising, literature, other dubious genres, and then applies some symbolic operation to them, right? Reads them, quote-unquote, against the grain for their supposedly subversive or perhaps anti-subversive messaging, and then call it a, calling it a day. There is good history like that, but that that's not what we're dealing with here, right? Because Harris makes sure, and here he contrasts himself to some of the earlier history, historians of the counterculture and cyberculture juncture, right? Like Fred Turner's From Counterculture to Cyberculture, which I think is a very good book. But Harris pretty openly states that he has stolen a march on Turner. I think there's some uh, some credibility to that, though. Uh, Turner also doesn't fall into some traps that Harris does. Because Harris sees that the dream and the material intertwine, right? And the way that, that dreams, visions of a future, and the material means of making those futures constitute each other, I think that's an important part of the California dialectic. And then Harris drops it. Drops it like a like a like a skillet. Right? There's no more material. There's no more dialectic. There's just this fern gully daydream that he drafts uh this Native American tribe into. And who needs that? Do the Alone need it? Do the Native Americans need it more generally? Do they need Malcolm Harris uh to tell them to hand them the keys? Uh, to Palo Alto? Does this sort of patronizing ideation help them or bring them any closer to power over their lives or over land? I suppose this is the part where I need to say that I think the Alone uh, being handed Palo Alto would certainly be well within the range of morally appropriate recompense to the extent any such thing exists for centuries of genocide and dispossession, particularly to the extent any such uh Thing exists within an ongoing framework. Uh, the the ongoing disaster that is history, as Walter Benjamin put it. It's stupid to isolate one part of that and say, "Ah, we're gonna we're we're, we're gonna just you know rewind the tape." Uh, it, vaguely, well, we don't need to go into that. You would figure that taking this legacy of disaster seriously and considering what can actually be done with it would be the way that you would want to go if you wanted to impress upon others how committed you were to justice for the oppressed and the marginalized but instead here and in many other places in otherwise uh, well-meaning and sometimes thoughtful parts of the culture we get these silly fantasies instead and that's just one of the many problems of indigeneity discourse especially as wielded by self-promoting white people like malcolm harris and Harris, whatever his talents, has been, uh, not doesn't particularly disagree with the common attribution of self-promoter to himself. And it's a problem with what a lot of a lot of what I've been coming to think of 
as kind of soft but loud left discourse. The thinking is soft, but they shout it loud as though their thinking is hard. The slogans are loud, clear, and provocative. The actual meaning, as many of those who mouth the slogans will tell you, turns out to be nuanced to the point of abstraction, right? They don't actually mean the three-word or four-word phrase that they're saying. They actually mean a four-paragraph essay explaining uh, what it what it actually means, which isn't usually the common-sense meaning. And then the organizing and planning that follows from those who take these slogans seriously are, as you'd figure, occasionally inspired, but almost always sloppy and unsustainable, and they don't produce results. Certainly not good ones. Intellectual entrepreneurs in this space, I would count Harris as one, and a pretty canny one, they take advantage of the slippage between slogans and analysis to evade both criticism and responsibility when they say things that they can't back up, either intellectually or with their own actions. So you're treated like a dumbass if you take the slogans literally. You're treated like a sellout or a quibbler if you insist on the nuance when people are yelling the slogan that you're a dumbass for taking literally. There's a dialectic for you. I suppose Harris didn't abandon it after all. Harris further plays with the space between how the slogan land back resounds to a culture utterly bound up in the assumptions of real estate capitalism and what the point of indigeneity and the land back concept and much of what we can learn from indigenous peoples seems to be, which is a dream of an end to capitalism and of collective ownership of land leading to the abolition of the concept of land ownership, period, which... I'm not an expert on this, but it does seem that scholars agree that Native Americans live without the concept of land ownership before the Columbian Exchange. We could treat it as a uh, living thing, collective resource, I don't know, there's a number of different metaphors you can use. I tend to imagine that if I quibbled with Harris about a blood quantum test for residents in post-apocalyptic Palo Alto, I'd get an earful from him about how actually the Alone uh, because they're generous and kind Native Americans stock characters in here, would of course allow others to use the land respectfully, etc., etc. But were I or some other similarly situated person who hasn't been in this situation before and hence knows better, tried to figure out what any of this would look like practically, the best case scenario, I think, is that Harris would inform me or this other theoretical person who would bother uh, that it's all a metaphor or a thought experiment or something. Right? You can't push for brass tacks. Worst case scenario, I think Harris and his Twitter followers would compete with each other to see who could be the better self-hating settler, insist on the literal meaning of giving all native land back to said natives, somehow excluding black people from this analysis. I guess they get to stay because, you know, uh, and, you know, dunking on uh, whoever it was had the uh, literal mindedness to bring any of that up. And this is all before the fact that the whole thought experiment is based on assume we get the Palo Alto City Council and the Board of Trustees at Stanford to agree to hand their land over. Harris just spent a very long uh, time explaining how California capitalism treats threats to their property values and then wants us all to just forget all that for the good of his fantasy. And ultimately, that irks me more than the rope-a-dope that white allies like Harris play with the semantics of liberation slogans. That said, I do think both 
point to some real intellectual limitations and ultimately hints at a profound cynicism in Harris's work. It's no shame to not have a strategic plan at the ready to overthrow capitalism. Truth be told, I don't see cynicism as necessarily that shameful, even though it could be an affliction. I do think it's an affliction that we come by honestly. It's tough out there. I do see transparent posturing as a substitute for analysis as shameful, especially when it's dressed up as an exaggerated concern for an allegiance to the marginalized. And I don't even think Harris was thinking, man, I gotta seem like I'm down with the indigenous. Or else, you know, also don't buy my book or something like that. I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I think it's actually a second order thing. He got there because he knows that that kind of posturing will drive his opposite numbers in the Twitter conflicts among leftists to distraction. The class reductionists, the social democratic podcasters, the Gen Z leftists, on and on and on. He knows that this kind of uh, dopey, dreamy, uh, I'm... I'm more down with the the people, more down with the revolution than the rest of you. And you could tell because I'm fantasizing about shit that won't happen. Uh, he knows this because of how many of these people over the last decade have reacted to previous dopey proclamations on the abolition of the family and of schools up to and including displaying great disdain for teachers, a product, uh, a type of worker that most leftists admire. I seem to remember there being some kerfuffle over him. Uh, snottily insisting that he feels no solidarity with teachers during teacher strikes. I don't remember if that was even a real thing or something people made up because people do make up stuff about people they don't like on Twitter. And a lot of people don't like Malcolm Harris on Twitter. Who knows? I suppose in the way of things, I've just showed myself aligned with these various Harris opponents and therefore could be tarred with their worst attributes, like a lack of concern for or solidarity with the indigenous or other marginalized peoples. Naturally, I don't think that's the case, but if you're going to believe it, you're going to believe it, and I don't think I will convince you verbally. But I could throw up this defense, uh, which is this. I don't think if I was that kind of person that I would have admired and praised the great bulk of this book as much as I have. Uh, I want to level with you. Do not let the ending ruin Palo Alto. It's a great book. I don't care if Malcolm Harris is annoying I don't care if he's maybe insincere in some respects. A great book is a great book, and Palo Alto is a great book. I couldn't even get into whole lines of argument, really great uh, archival work, and just very interesting stuff, a lot to chew on. Very good book. Uh, I I couldn't even get into most of it and keep this a podcast of listenable length. Uh, When we think about people, artists, writers, with whom we have serious disagreements, who then write books or produce works of culture that we have to concede concede as being great, usually we think of raging reactionaries, right? Dostoevsky, Celine, you know, uh, Salvador Dali wasn't exactly woke. Uh, So we think of that kind of person, or else we think of people who did terrible things to each other. They killed somebody, sexually assaulted somebody, et cetera, et cetera, or many somebody in some cases, et cetera, et cetera. What we don't think of when we think of, of the archetype is someone who has to wring an acknowledgement of greatness from us. We don't think a dude who's just kind of annoying some of the time in a zeitgeisty, hipstery way. But history being what it is, 
I believe it has thrown up just such an author in the person of Malcolm Harris, and in at least two of his books. Personally, I choose to find that we've encountered such a specimen uh, to be a hopeful sign for contemporary writing. And I don't know about you, but I don't see that many hopeful signs out there, so I'll certainly take this one, uh, despite, again, uh, strongly objecting to certain portions of the book, uh, or, or any way the ethos taken uh, in those portions. So that's it for me. Um, I should have some more podcasts coming more quickly. I don't think there'll be another long wait. I've got guests lined up, interesting stuff to talk about. Please do the things that help my podcast be a podcast. Uh, consider subscribing both to the podcast and to the newsletter. If you subscribe to the newsletter in such a way where you pay me, you know, the usual $5 a month slash 50 a year, uh, you also get access to a Discord channel. And my Discord channel has actually been going great guns, I think. So be in touch about that if you want uh, and enjoy reading. <laughs>